Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 174. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today's episode is one that's going to answer a hot and burning question that I often get from folks who are on the newer side of members of the workforce, folks who are on the younger side or just look young or present young. Today we're tackling the issue of how to be a leader when you don't really have authority. Now, that can be true for anyone at any age, but ageism in the workplace is something that keeps coming up in our courage community, and I want to talk about it from both angles. So later this month, you'll actually hear us uh, talk about ageism as it relates to women who are in their 40s, 50s, and beyond in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about you know, the verbal head padding <laughs> that happens, the verbal patronizing that happens way more than it should with young women especially. Today's guest is a highly accomplished woman who has been a change agent her entire career and told me this really compelling story that I had to make sure she shared with you on today's podcast too. And she's also someone who cares a lot about democratic participation in our elections. So it seemed fitting to feature her here in early November, just a week after our election day here in Colorado and in many places across the country. So I'm, I'm excited for you to hear from her about how to be a leader at any age, including when you are young and don't have any quote unquote authority to do so. Before we dive in, I want to give you one more reminder that this weekend's Bossed Up Bootcamp is in Los Angeles, California. It's almost completely full and it is going to be our last bootcamp for a little while. We're going to be shutting down Bossed Up Bootcamp as we retool, reassess the different offerings that we have here at Bossed Up to make sure that we're serving you well and providing lots of different ways to virtually participate with Bossed Up in addition to participating in our in-person, in-depth leadership development programming as well as we head into the new year. And as a final, final reminder, you can help determine how we proceed by weighing in on our community survey. There's a link in today's show notes. One lucky survey taker will receive a $100 gift card to Amazon for their own use, and we will donate $100 in your name to a charity of your choice. So please weigh in with your thoughts on our survey to share what's going on in your career personally, professionally, and how Bossed Up can best support you as we move forward. You never know. I always say you never know who you'll inspire by sharing your own come up story, but you also never know how much you'll inspire me to really create the products, services, and programs that can help you 
move forward with your goals in 2020. I can't wait to see many of you at Basta Bootcamp in LA this weekend and to read all of your responses from across the world and across the country via this survey in the meantime. All right, let's jump into today's conversation with Amber McReynolds. So first, a little context on my wonderful guest today. Amber McReynolds is a national leader in effective and innovative elections administration. She's the former director for elections for Denver, and now Amber is recognized across the country as a leading expert on election legislation and policy. Amber oversaw elections in Denver for 13 years, and under Amber's leadership, Denver became a national leader in election management and innovation. During Amber's tenure, Denver Elections earned awards from the Election Center, the National Association of Counties, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, and others for its innovative practices that increased the security, convenience, and efficiency of elections, something that I am a big proponent of, and this time of year gets us thinking about where we'll all be this time of year next year, especially. Um, so I'm excited to have Amber here with us today to share how she's served as a change agent at a young age in the Denver elections office, what we all can learn from that regardless of our industry, and what we can learn about women and voting and why it matters and how to be more involved. I should also mention that Amber is an advisory board member of the MIT Election and Data Science Lab and currently serves on the Circle of Advisors for the Democracy Fund's Election Validation Project. She's got a long laundry list, I'm not going to lie, of accolades and achievements and is a total boss, an all-around Colorado kick-ass woman who I'm thrilled to call a new friend. Amber, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you and I first met at Denver Startup Week just a few weeks ago now, maybe a few months ago. Yep. September. Right. Yeah. Just around the corner, just, just past us. And I remember having a, a brief conversation, learning about your background and saying, oh my goodness, I have such admiration for young change agents who enter the realm of politics and make things happen and help move government forward. I have to have you on the podcast. We have to talk through this story. So give me a little bit of background about where you found yourself when you were just getting started in your career, because I think there's a story there that our listeners will love. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from the state of Illinois. I moved to Colorado about 15 years ago. After I went to undergrad uh, at University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, I actually went and did my graduate work at the London School of Economics in England. So I lived in London for about two years and had the honor and just great privilege. I was I feel very blessed that and fortunate that I had this opportunity, but I while I was there, I worked full-time as a research associate for uh, the right Honorable Harriet Harman, who was at the time Tony Blair's Solicitor General in Parliament. So I was able to work in Parliament while I was in the UK for two years. And really, that was kind of my first exposure to working in a, in a government environment and kind of in politics and getting involved in more of that activity. So I, after I got done with my master's, moved back to the United States, uh, ran um, a, a small coalition kind of... Um, project in uh, the Quad City area in Illinois, and then and then took a job and went to work for New Voters Project during the 2004 presidential election. And I, I was one of the state coordinators in Iowa. So I was one of the kind of regional coordinators traveled around the state, 
worked with college campuses to improve civic engagement. What does that look like from a practical standpoint? Because I feel like that work has to be continuing today. Yeah. So it was a nonpartisan nonprofit and it was called New Voters Project. And our mission, our entire mission was to work with college campuses and sort of figure out better ways for students to register to vote, engage, get information about voting. So it was really to help college students navigate that election process and and help them vote. And we increased turnout amongst those campuses that we worked on, which is great. We were we were effective at increasing the number of voters that, that voted that year. But that experience, honestly, for me, exposed me to the difficulties, the barriers, the deadlines, the inefficiencies. Everything was paper forms at the time, and you had to have them into the office by a certain point. And so it just, it stood out to me as, wow, like, boy, this sure would operate a lot better if we were doing this in a different way. And around that time, I think, you know, the iPhone started, you know, smartphones started to come out and like all that stuff was sort of percolating. So it kind of just was like, wow, we're, we're really pretty inefficient here. I had a Blackberry, I think around that time, or I, I remember I just, the days, or, well. you know, yeah. right. <laughs> so it's like all the way back then, but I was 25 and I was working on college campuses and in that work with New Voters Project, I actually w- went to a few trainings in Denver. And I thought, wow, I love the city. At the time, I thought I was going to either end up in Chicago or probably Washington, D.C. But I ended up deciding I wanted to try to apply for some jobs in Denver and see if I could move to, to Denver. It does have that effect on people like you and me and a lot of others. It totally does. <laughs> it totally does, right? Yeah. The secret's out. Yeah. So I applied for a job at the Denver Elections Office and I was 26 at the time. And in the interview, the gentleman that would eventually become my boss, and I say gentleman very in a, in a very nice way, he said to me, aren't you a little young to be applying for this job? And I was applying for like a coordinator job. I was going to have responsibility for some staff, but it wasn't like senior leadership or anything. And I thought to myself, well, first off, I don't think you as a government agency or really anybody should be asking somebody that question in interview. But honestly, that question alone told me so much about the office. And I didn't know it at the time in the interview, but I found out very quickly when I did accept the job and went in that I was definitely the youngest kind of person on the team. There were a few others that were temporary in their jobs and they were they were also in that category. But I found an office that was antiquated and everything that they were doing, they didn't really have a premier focus on serving voters. They They sort of constantly, it was, we've done it this way for decades or we've always done it this way and we're going to keep doing it this way. And honestly, nothing made sense. Like the first two months I was there, like I saw staff that didn't get along. I saw like internal politics and people hated each other. And I just was like, oh my goodness, like this is just (laughs) awful. I know. I don't mean to make light of it, but I'm almost laughing hearing the women who are listening to this podcast shake, like nodding their heads vigorously. Like that description of experiencing, well, this is the way how things have been done here. And this is how things will continue to be done here is a line that so many of us get. And at the same time, when I talk about gender bias at work or bias based on race at work, we have to acknowledge that age and ageism is a huge form of bias that people bring to the table. And it clearly 
harms people of a certain age when they are older folks in the job market, for instance, which we've talked about on this podcast. But you can't make a legal case for ageism. I think it was you who told me this. You can't make a legal case for ageism in the other direction. Was that you that we had that discussion? Yeah, I think we did talk about that. I completely agree. And, it, you know, I think in addition to sort of in addition to sort of feeling like, wow, I'm really on an island here. I'm literally the only person in the office that's like got this perspective. Yeah. My first day, that same person that asked me about how old I was or mentioned that in the interview said, well, so you're not married yet. Well, why aren't you married yet? And well, why do you have kids? Don't you want kids? Like, why aren't you married? Oh like, literally, God. these were all the like first questions on my first day. And in theory, one would run, run from that, you know, and I thought about it. I thought I went home and I thought, well, it can only get better. Right. And I just kind of like took it and went with it because I really wanted to, I was really excited about the work. I was really excited to be there. And I thought, boy, there's a lot that needs to change here. It's interesting as a change agent, especially a young change agent, we run into things that we see as in terrible need of change, uh, you know, and disrepair in some ways. And you can make the call, only you, I feel like, can really make the call, am I going to fight or flight? (laughs) Right? Like, am I going to bounce for something else, which sometimes is a perfectly reasonable and valid choice, it's a personal choice, or am I going to stay here because I believe in the potential for change, because I believe in the, the theory of changing this office? So what ended up happening in your role there? Well, so a couple things, and this is something I think for your listeners, I was in a new city. I didn't have my girlfriends from college. I didn't have my, you know, friends from high school. I didn't have mentors. I didn't have friends around me to talk to about a a lot of these sorts of things. And that was really hard. I mean, I remember going home at night and, you know, I'd be journaling or I was trying to find outlets to like, what do I do about this? You know, and I would try to talk to friends from home, but I think at a distance, it just makes it hard when you can't go grab coffee or grab lunch or what have you. So I started looking for opportunities. I I started looking for similar minded people that were, you know, whether they were temporary employees at the office or within the office. And I put my head down and just thought, you know what, I am going to learn as much as I possibly can in terms of the area that I'm responsible for and figure out a way to make that better. Yeah. And I was responsible for mail balloting basically, and then overseas and military ballots. Uh, that was sort of my department. And I thought, you know what, I am going to learn everything I possibly can absorb everything I can dive into this and, and commit just like I have for everything that I've always done and commit to being excellent and getting to that point of having it be so obvious in terms of how I understand this, that it's like second nature and I'm just going to dive in and do it. And I'm going to ignore all of this outside noise. So I didn't go to lunch with the kind of clicks that existed in the office. I tried to avoid that like gossip stuff and like people were just so not happy with each other. And I also sought out, there was a a leadership program actually in the city uh, because this was part of the city and County of Denver. So there was a program in the city and I went to the you know head of the agency and I said, hey, you know, I think this could really bring benefit to our office if I can get in this program and it's a year long and it's with other kind of mid-level leaders. And so I applied and got in. And that's where I was able to connect with some people that had similar 
experiences because they were in other government agencies. But I also made some good friends there. And I think it gave me a way to go and learn about leadership and kind of continue to enhance my skills. Right. And, and frankly, get out of the office, like get out of the bad environment. There's a great lesson in that too, that if you're not feeling lifted up by your colleagues, there's still other ways that you can seek out mentorship and support that might not be coming via your nine to five. And so being proactive about that is such a great takeaway. Yeah, exactly. First six months, I did not, I still, I think it's hard to make friends when you're of a certain kind of age, when you go to a city, uh, you know, and I, I started to make some good girlfriends and guy friends and started to kind of build out a better network. And then that leadership experience like that really helped. But in my mind and, you know, in the office, sort of while I was sort of seeking out other things outside the office, in the office, every staff meeting, there'd be this discussion about something. And the answer was always, we've always done it this way. We're, that's, we're not going to utilize your idea. And by the way, when you have a few more years of elections experience, maybe you'll learn that that's not going to work or, you know, the, that kind of mentality. I also started a journal and I would literally write down ideas I had, whether it was at night or post meetings or as I saw things. And some of the ideas were related to staffing issues or one of the ideas I think I wrote down in my journal was we need a full-time GIS person in our office. You know, we need better communications people and we need better technology in this area, or we need better signage. Like I just, I literally documented like everything. And I would even, even come across antiquated laws and policies. And I would make note of those. Okay. Can I just pause there for a second? (laughs) Because I love that you were doing that. And I think, you know, I, I read something recently. Well, let me back up and say, I love that you were doing that because whether we call it journaling or being clear about our vision, which is what it was, right? Like you had a vision for what needed to be improved. For whatever reason, women leaders, according to this research I was just looking at, are rated really high about empathizing with colleagues and supporting colleagues and being good servant leaders. In fact, they they get rated higher than men leaders on pretty much every leadership characteristic except having a clear vision. And communicating a clear vision is such a key part of being a change agent. So the fact that you weren't necessarily saying it out loud, but you started by chronicling it yourself to clarify that vision is so key. And so many of us, whether you're navigating a career change or want to move up in a leadership role where you're at, start writing down what you would do differently. It's just that simple sometimes to say, here's my vision. And for an audience of one is a great place to start just for you. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it helped me because it took away some of the frustrations, mm-hmm. you know, that I was experiencing in the office and it just gave me an outlet. And that journal actually became very valuable about nine months after I had started it, about a year after I'd started it in that, you know, because of the way the office was structured, there were governance problems, there was accountability problems, technology problems. Year after I joined the team, Denver had a bad election in 2006, technology failed. And that that person that had asked me about my age and what have you was the one in charge of it. And he kind of rolled out a system that wasn't fully tested yet, along with others that were in senior leadership. And it impacted lines out at the vote centers and the polling places. So Denverites waited in line a long time. It was actually Mayor Hickenlooper at the time 
And city council said, we need to change the governance model here. We're going to go for an elected clerk and recorder and get rid of the commission. And then that will hopefully add more accountability to make sure this doesn't happen in the future. And a lot of people got fired, including my boss, who was the one that kind of berated me for my age in the interview. And I was one of the only ones actually that remained in the office. A lot of people were either let go or sort of encouraged to leave. And the new clerk and recorder came in and she's amazing. Her name is Stephanie O'Malley and she's still a public servant in the, in the city and county of Denver. And she came in, she met with each of us and she sat down with me and she said, hey, I see here that the state has offered you a job to leave. And I said, yeah, I, I'm still thinking about whether or not I'm going to take that. And she said, well, I, you know, I'd really like you to be part of the, the change here. You know, I'd really like you to help me change. And she said, you know, if you're open to that, I, you know, I can't guarantee anything. We're going to be hiring for new positions and leadership and all that stuff. But if you're willing to stay on a little bit, I'd really like to have you on our team. And I said, well, you know what? I'd really love to do that. And I have a whole book of ideas. And I, I literally had my had the journal there. I love and it. And I said, I've been chronicling ideas for change over the last year. And she was like, she was like blown away. She's like, what? <laughs> and so I like, I li- literally showed her some of that. Yeah. And in a way, in a way, it was a playbook. It was my playbook of like, here's what I would do if I were in leadership, or here's what I would do if I had the opportunity. And I stayed on, she promoted me to be a manager and then deputy director shortly after. And then we just, we reorganized the office. We reorganized the structure. We put the right people in the right jobs and we hired a lot of new energy. And I was responsible for hiring a lot of those folks. So I looked for people with expertise and background and diversity of thought and diversity of, of background. And it didn't matter to me if you had elections experience. In fact, I preferred people that didn't have any because then I could teach them the right method of <laughs> how to run elections. And we built this incredible team. And then Denver just literally in the, that was about 2007 into 2008. Over the last 11 years, Denver has become one of the best election offices in the country, national, international award-winning offices. We catapulted technology changes. We got policy changes done. That was really the start of it, right? When we kind of had, unfortunately, a bad election, but like this new clerk that came in that said, we're not going to keep doing it the same way. Yeah. I just want to highlight here, I hear from a lot of folks sometimes who confuse leadership with having the sort of hierarchical permission or power that's ordained from a position to make change. And I try to explain to folks, power doesn't really work that way. And leadership doesn't really work based off of what your title is. And this is a perfect example whereby you were a relatively new member of the team who had a playbook because you chose to be clear about your vision and think about what you would change. And there was an element, of course, of right place, right time here, and that things actually did fall together and, and you had your opportunity to make those changes a reality. But you were prepared for that reality, not because of your title, not because of hierarchical positions of authority that you were in, but you were daring to say out loud, here's what I think we need to do and make change happen from the bottom up. And I I want to just highlight that having the audacity to say out loud what you think needs to be better doesn't always work out, but it's the first step to innovation. That's the first step to taking the risks of actually improving how things are going. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that doing it with positivity, not doing it with sort of berating the way somebody else did it, but just doing it with trying to stay positive throughout, you know, even when other people are negative, I think is, is, a, is, a, is a good approach, especially when you're a young leader or you want to be a leader and you're trying to gain those, those skill sets, because the reality is you have to work with lots of different types of people. Some people are going to be awesome. Other people are not going to be awesome. And you also have to figure out, and, you know, I started to try to try to do this very intentionally. You have to also figure out the method of communication and sort of how other people receive um, information and feedback and, and how they take potential change. And I think everybody varies on that. And if you're not aware of sort of how somebody's going to take information in or how someone's going to receive it, I think it becomes very difficult to work together to enact those particular changes. Right. I mean, tell me more about that, because how did you gain those skills as a manager? Right. It sounds like you got those skills on the job, right? You really developed that skill set as you as you went along. First off, I think that every person on your team can teach you something every day. Like I, I truly believe that whether it's a direct report, if you're, you know, and I was the director by the time I left, whether it's a direct report or it's one of your key deputies, right? I am convinced that you can learn something new from somebody in your team environment every single day. And I honestly, I tried to do that. And we, we had a very diverse staff. We had people that had been there for 30 some years. One of, one of my deputies that, you know, when I ended up leaving and he's the operational manager there now, he was fought in Vietnam. His perspective on things and all of that is very different from the comms guy that I hired that was 27, right? Right. So you've got this sort of range of perspectives. I think they can learn something from each other, right? I think I can learn something from each of them. And so I think when you approach it in that way, you're more empathetic to what people's needs may be in their team environment, but you're also yourself being intentional about learning about your team, caring for your team and, and trying to also become a better leader in that way so that you can better respond to their needs. Because, you know, what you said earlier about power, I mean, I say this all the time, especially with government, after working in government for 13 years and being very close to state and federal government, I'm convinced that it is less about elected officials in terms of changes that come about. I mean, they get their power because they got elected, right? And they get their power because of a title. The sort of people that make everything happen in the background are often the ones that impact your daily lives a lot more than what an elected official may or may not do. So I think there's a lot of power when we talk about public service. The public service is really happening at that employee level. Yeah. Because they're the ones that are the agents that are serving all the citizens and, and delivering services in some way across the board. And so I think, I think that that was really my approach. And I think you also, there's a way to earn respect and power separate from it being sort of uh, given to you or crowned to you or, right. you know, in, in that way, right. You, you earn it. And when you earn it, I think there's definitely a stronger grassroots and probably even a lot more empathy comes along with that because you're earning it from your colleagues and you're earning it from your peers. You know, what word comes to mind is trust. Yeah. You know, when you're proving yourself, you're doing the work, right? You're showing up every day to do the work, not just talk the talk. You're walking the walk. You're empathizing with your team. You're 
developing the, the leadership skills that enable you to not just show up well for yourself, but for everybody, you know, you get a team that's bought in and it's a really hard thing to do. I think trust is something just like in relationships of any kind, it's easy to break. It's harder to build. Yeah. And so I admire your story so much. It sounds like you've learned so much from your 13 years at the elections office. I'd love for you to tell me more about how you've parlayed that experience into Vote at Home, this new non, not not totally new, but this exciting nonprofit that you've kicked off and you're leading and, and hoping to replicate that sort of change agent work that you've done here in Denver to make it happen elsewhere. Tell us about that. Yeah. So once we kind of got the organizational structured in, in a good way and we started running better elections and developing better processes, we were then able to go and advocate for policy changes at the legislature. And so 2013, myself, along with some a, a coalition of really great leaders across different disciplines, put together a a package of reforms at the legislature that included modernizing the registration process, streamlining that, making it easy for voters so that they don't have to, you know, it's happening more automatically on the back end instead of all the paper process that used to happen. And then we also then streamlined and automated the balloting process. So you in Colorado, now you get your ballot mailed to you automatically before every election. You have all the time in the world at home to vote your ballot Let's not forget that you get a guide to every proposition or everything on the ballot. And yeah, it's so easy. Yeah. So about a year and a half ago, I was approached to be on the founding board of a nonprofit that was going to be titled the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition. And I joined the board and we had an acting executive director at the time. And every board meeting, we ended up kind of going to, well, who are we going to get to be the executive director and kind of cat, you know, take this this nonprofit to the next level. And at the end of the day, every time all the board members, and it kind of became a little bit of a joke, they would say, well, we just need to find a replica of Amber. We need someone that's done this before, that's implemented these policy changes, that's run an organization, that's got, you know, that can speak about this, that has this experience. And so last summer, I kind of, I said, all right, okay, what does this look like? You know, I wasn't planning to leave Denver, but I'd been there 13 years and I thought maybe I should explore this. So I started talking to them and then decided that I was going to leave Denver elections and and head up this national nonprofit that was going to focus on replicating essentially everything we did in Colorado everywhere else. So I joined as the executive director. We've expanded our team greatly in in, um, the last year. We've had legislation in 20, 20 to 25 states this year. We just got a bill, a bipartisan bill that moved through the House and the Senate in Pennsylvania yesterday. Amazing. It's going to be the probably one of the most monumental changes that Pennsylvania has seen in terms of their elections in a very long time. And Pennsylvania is one of the, frankly, worst states in terms of voting access. Yeah. There's so much activity on this topic. And we've seen a lot of great things happen over the last year. And so we're going to continue that effort. We want to make the voting process easier for every voter across the country. And that's really what our mission is. And that's what we're about as an organization. I'm so excited. It sounds like when people are asking to just replicate you, that is a good signal to maybe create an organization that can do just that. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I want to get to your book, which is released today, which is very exciting. But before we talk about the book, why does access to registration 
matter so much? And why is it so all across the board in these United States of America? I feel like a lot of folks think it's 2019, we should all be voting more simply online and lots of easy technological solutions. What's going on in our country to give us sort of a, a bird's eye view of why election access is so important and still so uh, not equal for folks across different states and different communities? So, and this actually speaks to a little bit of the premise of the book. So when you look at the history of the United States, I mean, first off, the conduct of elections is mandated through the Constitution to the states. So there's certain things at the federal level that can be standardized. There's been a couple of acts that have speak, spoke to this. So the Voting Rights Act, the 19th Amendment, when the, the you know the enfranchised women to vote, the Voting Rights Act, the National Voter Registration Act, the Help America Vote Act. So there's been a couple of pretty significant federal pieces of legislation that have tried to add standards. But the reality is there's fifth, you know, there's this is done differently in every single state. And in some ways, that's a good thing. In a, in a lot of ways, that's a bad thing. And so we see these disparities. And frankly, it's confusing to voters. It's confusing for campaigns to run operations across multiple states. And it doesn't work so well. But the reason I think when we look over our, our history, our voting process and the way that we have ha- that we have provided access to this in this democracy has been mostly about leaving people out. So if we go back 100 years to when the 19th Amendment was passed, and Colorado, by the way, was the first state to pass women's suffrage by popular referendum. So the voters, and actually all men, only men could vote in 1893, actually just slightly over 50% of men in Colorado voted to give women the right to vote here. And it was the first state that had done that. But again, men made the decision to give women the right to vote. And so when we look at this, same thing with women being left out of the process, then Latino women and Black women and Asian women got it even later. So Asian women were not enfranchised until the 1950s, which is crazy. And we still continue to see states not ratify the 19th Amendment. So Mississippi did not ratify the 19th Amendment until 1984. Oh, my God. That is when their state legislature decided that they would finally say officially that women were granted the right to vote. Yeah. They had the right to vote legally because of it, it was ratified by enough state. Sure, sure, sure. But they literally refused to pass it until then. Wow. Was it, and it was put up for years and it was voted down? Yes. And it happened actually in a lot of states that way. But again, the women's suffrage movement started in Western states. Western states were the first ones to enfranchise women to vote. Then it kind of rolled to the Midwest. And then it finally went to Northeast part of the country. And then kind of the Southeast part refused until Congress passed it in 1919 and then ratified it in 1920. So women's suffrage, I always say, is a good look. It's actually relevant for today because the same Western states that enfranchised women first are the same states today that have made the voting process easier. So Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii, you know, you go and it's all West, right? So when we look at this, like we want to see to continue to expand East, you know, and hopefully we get all the way East, but that's where we've seen kind of a lot of the resistances, especially in the Eastern side of the country, more antiquated governance structures, resistance to change, kind of back to what we were talking about, right? 
policymakers in state legislative bodies get elected in a certain way of voting. And so when I go and say, well, we want to make this, you know, we want to change this. We want to make it easier for everyone. They're like, well, no, no, no. I'm okay with the current. I want Yeah, yeah. It's directly threatening their entire existence in the elected body that they're in. Yeah, I get that. Right. So the resistance to change is kind of the thing. And that's and that's what we face, right? With trying to get this movement done. What troubles me, Amber, is that nowadays it seems beyond resistance to change, it sounds to me like there's a lot of places where access to voting is under active attack in terms of barriers to making it easier to access your voting rights, which are already our rights, right? As American citizens, there are lots of barriers being put up and whether it's voter ID laws or redistricting or just the confusing sort of additional red tape that's being added to the elections process. Do you see us not only facing a lack of openness to change, but actually some regression on that? Yeah, here's the thing on it, right? Like voting and the service of elections is a fundamental core government service. And what's crazy about it is it's one of the most underfunded. When you look at what government's task is, I mean, one of the things in our democracy is, is holding elections, investing in making sure that that process is efficient. And we're doing a very poor job of it everywhere, um, frankly. And so that's that's a gap. And I think the other thing is that people all the time, we talk, you hear things about the gerrymandering and redistricting, which is a huge, significant problem. And frankly, one that is on both sides of the aisle. It's again about the power structure and maintaining power. Um, but the other part of this is voters being either taken off the list or their data isn't updated, so they get inactivated. And that's why things like automatic registration and us figuring out better technical advancements in the registration process is so critical because by doing that, we're going to address all of those sort of barriers that we find in the process because we're going to streamline it, make it easier for voters, the list get more accurate. All those things come along with those technical advancements. The other piece is, you know, we hear about photo IDs and we hear about um, uh, misinformation, which is, just, I still think is one of the biggest problems that we face as a nation. But I always say that New York City last year, Georgia, lines in Florida, when you see stories and reports, and it happened across the country, well, it happened in not a lot in the West, but most, <laughs> most places in the country last year, four, five, six hour lines on election day to vote in New York City. I mean, Pennsylvania. To me, when you are a voter and you face a line like that, the likelihood of you leaving if you have small kids to pick up for school or if you have to get back to your work or you can't take six hours off on a Tuesday to vote, those are the biggest barriers that every voter in the country is susceptible to if we don't do a model like what we've done in Colorado, right? And so this is why the policies need to be pro-voter. They need to be voter centric. They need to utilize technology that exists to make things easier for people because you should not in this country, in this modern age, have to wait five hours in line to vote like like we saw voters do last year. I mean, it's such a privilege. Who has the ability to take four or five hours off to do that on Tuesday or, 
even with early voting on any day, that that privilege of time is not equally distributed in our country either. So, yeah, I think that's something we can all relate to wanting to change. And it affects poor people more. It affects, you know, marginalized folks who don't have the privilege of being able to spend five hours even more so. So I think there's a really strong argument there for how making it easier to access your right to cast your ballot is good for everybody. It lifts all boats. Absolutely. Okay. So tell us about the book. It's out today. It's called When Women Vote. Tell us what, what do you really unpack entirely in the book? You gave us a little preview, but I'd love to learn more. Yes. We actually have a website and we have our social media account. So any anybody, any of your listeners can go to the website and see our little video that we describe the book. But the website is whenwomenvote.org. And we are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and um, all of that's there. So we'd love um, folks to engage with us that way. Our book is really what we've done is we've told the stories of women voters and also two women secretaries of state of different party affiliations. We interviewed them for our book, mainly to tell the, the story of the need for structural reforms, like modernizing registration, like modernizing the voter, the voter process overall, like fair redistricting, all of these sorts of policy issues we highlight in the book as a need for change. And we tell the story of the barriers that many voters still face through the eyes of some of the women voters that we interviewed about their experience last year. And really what we're saying is, look, when more people vote, when we make the process easier and we take that turnout that was in 2018, that was supposedly record turnout, that was only 50 percent of the country, by the way, and we turn that into 80 percent and we engage a broader we engage a broader voting population, whether that's men, women, you know, any segment, the more that people engage, the healthier our democracy will be. And what our premise is that the more that women engage in particular is that we will we will see a prioritization of policies that are more important to women. So whether it's education, health care, you know, any of these sorts of issues that rise to the top, women in small businesses or starting a business, any of those sorts of things that we want to see get prioritized, we believe will happen when more women vote, more women get elected and more people are engaged. We highlight pay equity. I mean, part of the reason that we haven't seen more pay equity type solutions, whether it's in Congress or other state legislative bodies, is Congress has 24% women right now. It was supposedly a record year in 2018, and the United States ranked 78th in the world in terms of women's representation. We still have a state, namely Vermont, that has never sent a woman to Washington, D.C. at all in any in Congress or in the Senate, right? Those are the sorts of things, like the fact that we still have a state today that has never elected a woman to send them to Congress is crazy. A state that would call itself very progressive, mind you. (laughs) Yes, I think that'd be a great question for the debate stage sometime for people from Vermont. (laughs) But, you know, we have a representation problem. The other thing in Congress right now is Women with school-aged children are less than 5% of Congress, and men of school-aged children are also a small percentage of Congress. So when we wonder why education and policies around education and funding aren't being solved, and childcare and maternity and paternity leave and family leave, all these things, they're not being prioritized because the people that they impact the most are not represented right. Absolutely. Um, in, in legislatures. So 
So that's what we try to do is really highlight the need for structural changes in the voting process so that we can then in turn expand the electorate more broadly, get people more engaged so that we can have more meaningful conversations about policies and priorities and get more input, frankly, from a broader population. Well, Amber, you've got my vote. I'm excited. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait. I am so thrilled to see the work you've done as a public servant. Now as the the leader behind this effort, Vote at Home, and, and really replicating the change that you've helped shepherd into Denver elections for the better. And I think there's just so many lessons from a leadership development standpoint for young listeners of this podcast to take notes on what it looks like to go into straight up ageism and sexism, an environment that makes it clear that you're othered in some way, and then persevere and make change happen. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for inspiring us on so many levels with this conversation. I'm going to drop links to all of the voteathome.org website and your book's website, whenwomenvote.org. Is there anything else that our ladies need to know or our listeners need to know about how... Actually, before I wrap up, in case anyone thinks I'm not going to tell you to register to vote right now, we got to cover that block, right? We have a big election coming up. Actually, every election is a big election. But um, make sure that you find out the information you need. Do you have a resource that you like to refer people to across the country when it comes to finding out how to vote or how to register to vote? Yeah, and there's a couple of really great resources. I mean, our website has some links to various resources about signing up for a mail ballot, that kind of thing. But there's some amazing organizations that have collated a lot of information state by state. Um, When We All Vote is an incredible nonprofit, and they have a ton of information on their website, and they're doing a lot of kind of community-focused events over the next year. Uh, they're one of our partner organizations. We, we think that their work is awesome. Also, Rock the Vote is an amazing like group to follow. They have a tool to register to vote associated with their website. So they have some awesome stuff. TurboVote and the Voter Information Project, which is VIP. Um, those are all four, I think, great uh, organizations and resources for your, your listeners to follow and and frankly, get more involved. Like we have a sign up for our newsletters and we would love to have more Great. people get involved with our work that we're doing. I love, especially when young women approach me and they're like, how can I get more involved in some of the stuff you're doing? I'm like, oh my goodness, yes, let's let's build this out, right? So love all of that. And then to kind of end with, I mean, my my motto, and I have two young children my, and I'm a single mom, but my motto with them is have courage and be kind. And my mom taught me that when I was young and that has stuck with me. I think it applies to pretty much everything that we do, whether it's work or personal or that kind of thing. And I think just for your listeners, have courage and be kind every day. I love it. And we'll continue to make the world a better place. Have courage and be kind. Amber, thank you so much for spreading your message our way. I'm so delighted that our our paths crossed. And I really appreciate your generosity and kindness on on this interview today. Me too. Well, thanks for having me. It was really amazing to be here. Learn more about Amber's initiative at voteathome.org. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move Moment of the Week. Hi, this is Jenny from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I had a career conundrum that came on the pod, episode number 56. 
And today I wanted to share my boss move with the community. We had some mental health challenges at my employer. And as a result of that, I'm going to be presenting to our whole company in the month of May next year, a presentation on mental wellness and mental illness, because I was brave enough to talk about it and disclose uh, what are resources that we can give our employees. So wanted to share that good news. Thank you so much. Jenny, I am so thrilled to hear from you, boss, and so proud of how you've lifted as you've climbed. This is such a great example of being a boss. Just as a reminder for our listeners, if you missed it, Jenny's career conundrum was addressed um, back last September on episode 56. I'll drop a link in today's show notes on an episode called Talking About Mental Health at Work. It's a great episode full of resources and advice from a psychologist, Dr. Monica O'Neill. And Jenny, I'm so proud of you and so thrilled to hear about your boss move and hear about the changes that you have brought to your organization. And now you'll be able to scale up on a broader in a broader way. That's so inspiring. And I'm just so proud of you. So thank you for calling in your boss move. You're giving me the inspiration to do the hard work of like system change myself so we can have a bigger impact here as well, which is some of the, some of the stuff I'm working on as we figure out a few pivots that we're navigating for really doing more on a broader, bigger scale next year, but doing it in a way that, um, that is sustainable and not going to burn me out because I didn't burn out and quit my day job to start a company and then burn out as an entrepreneur fighting burnout. <laughs> so I, I'm inspired by you, Jenny, and I appreciate you calling in. If you, listener, have a boss move to share or a career conundrum that you want us to address on an upcoming episode, don't hesitate to call it in at 910-668-BOSS. That's 2677. Don't worry, go straight to a voicemail on our Google Voice inbox. And for my international listeners, feel free to just record a voice memo or for any reason that is something you'd prefer and you're here in the US, record a voice memo and email it to us. Make sure to give us some contact info so we can give you a heads up as to when you'll be on the pod. That's all I got for y'all today. Don't forget to fill out that survey, please. It's in the show notes. And if you found today's conversation inspiring and you know a young person who feels like they can't lead because they don't have authority and they feel belittled and discriminated against because of their youth, please do them a favor and pass this episode along to them as a way of sharing the gospel that is bossed up and sharing this information that can help inspire others to, to step up as the boss of their life as well. Until next time, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. <laughs>